Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Happy Earth Day week. While we're all at home in the new normal, feeling anything but normal, there's definitely one thing worth celebrating. Life itself. The pandemic has shown us just how fragile and beautiful life is. The veneer of invincibility that we'd built up over the last decades has been stripped away in an instant. We're now learning what we always have known, but not acted upon, which is that each day is precious and magical and that we can't take anything, most especially our health and the health of our planet, for granted. In that spirit of adventure, there's one place in San Francisco that I've been trying to explore for nearly 20 years. The remote Farallon Islands, 30 miles off the Golden Gate Bridge. On a clear day, you can see this cluster of three main islands from the shore. But here's the catch. They're closed to the public because the Farallones are one of the largest seabird colonies in the nation. The islands are also host to seals, great white sharks, and many different species of whale. The Farallon Islands National Wildlife Refuge is one of 63 such refuges around the country, and the waters surrounding the islands are protected as part of the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary. For decades, Point Blue Conservation Science, a Petaluma-based research organization whose mission is to conserve birds, wildlife, and ecosystems through innovative science partnerships and outreach, has continuously had teams of scientists located on the Farallons. Point Blue has a formal research agreement with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Every few weeks, Point Blue works with local boat owners who volunteer to resupply the Farallon scientists with food. I was lucky enough to tag along for the ride. I get on the boat, the Outer Limits, in Sausalito, and we begin our journey. I'm joined by Pete Warzybock, who's Point Blue's senior marine ecologist and has spent more time on the islands than anyone else on the planet. While still on the boat, I start by asking Pete exactly how long Point Blue has been conducting research on the Farallons. Yeah, Point Blue has been working out on the Farallons for more than 50 years. Uh, we've had people on the island every single day since April 3rd, 1968. Which is just crazy. And it's just hard to believe that there's that much data, scientific data, going all the way back to the 60s. It is pretty incredible. There are not very many... Uh, continuous long-term data sets, especially for seabird monitoring throughout the world. And uh, to have one in an area as special as the Farallons is in, an incredible opportunity. I don't know if you know this, Pete, but I've been trying to get out to the Farallons for like 20 years. So for me, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, super foggy today. Uh, does it, I don't know, hopefully the fog will lift. You've been out here a long time. What's your, what's your bet? Um, I think most times the, the fog lifts, sometimes mid to late morning, um, but we have a lot of very, very foggy days out at the Farallons. The combination of the cold ocean water and, and warmer temperatures on the mainland tends to lead to fog out at the islands. And, and you could have days when you get out there to the island and you can't even see it until you get on land. I mean, yeah, we're like now maybe half a mile and I just just saw it and it's pretty, ma I mean, it's magical. They just kind of jut out of the Pacific. Do you remember your first time seeing the Farallons? I do. Uh, I was going out, uh, this was in the spring of 2000. I was going out as a volunteer research assistant 
and uh, we were on a long, slow boat ride on a very rough day, and uh, we started sailing at about midnight. We got to the island about 7 a.m., and uh, shortly after the sun was rising, I started to see the, the islands poking up over the horizon, uh, and it was just an incredibly magical sight. I still remember it, and I, I still have the image in my head. Yeah, it's, it does feel like the mists of Avalon, where like the knights of King Arthur would like see the mists rise, and it, it kind of reminds me of some magical place. How the hell do we get from this big boat up onto the cliffs above us? It, it, it looks like a treacherous, I mean, what, what's the procedure? It is rather complicated. Uh, so the islands themselves are very rocky. There's no safe place to land a boat. Um, the islands just kind of jut right out of the ocean, as you were saying. So what we do is we have a crane that's on the east side of the island, and we use that to lower a small landing craft uh, into the ocean, and that will drive out to meet our boat. And then from there, it'll shuttle the people and gear back and forth between the island and the, the boat that's bringing us out here. The boat looks like below us, like it's just made out of metal. I've never seen like such a small, why is the boat metal? Uh, yeah, our landing craft is what's called a safe boat and it's a solid aluminum hull with uh, flotation, uh, styrofoam's flotation secured around the outside of it. So it's a, a very sturdy boat and you can imagine when you're lifting it up out of the water with gear in it or people in it um, and, and you're moving it back and forth in this rough environment, you want a very sturdy boat. So we're, we're very happy to have it. But then, but then it looks like we have to be like lifted like 50 feet in the air, which I, I presume that we're going to be in the boat when that happens. It looks terrifying. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's definitely unique, and uh, you know, if you're afraid of heights, it, it, it could be terrifying. But uh, <laughs> great, now you tell me. <laughs> uh, I, I will assure you, it's all very safe. Um, you know, we've been doing it this way for a very long time. Going into a, a little cove, you're gonna hook the boat onto this crane and then you're gonna lift it about 30 feet up in the air and swinging it over the landing. So it is a very unique and um, interesting way to use a boat. Okay, Pete, now that we're standing actually on the island itself, I have to say that that crane ride on the boat was actually terrifying and fun. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad to have my feet on the ground. So how long have you been out on the Farallons? I, I know you come back and forth, but, like, how many years have you been out here? I've been coming out here for 20 years now. The Actually, the 2019 uh, summer field season was my 20th consecutive season coming out and so I have also have the dubious distinction of having spent the most nights on the island uh, since the fish and wildlife is uh, since the islands have become a refuge and I've spent a little over uh, 2400 nights on the island at this point that's incredible so it really feels like home to you Yes, the Farallons very much do feel like home. In fact, uh, the field station on the Farallons is the place where I have lived the longest uh, since moving to California 20 years ago. Uh, on the mainland, I've moved four or five times to different places, but I always have the house on the Farallons to go back to as my home. 
Oh, that's amazing. Um, well, this is my first time. I feel super privileged to be able to, to get out here. Um, what's the reasoning behind making it so difficult? Well, the, the Farallone Islands National Wildlife Refuge is, is one of the few refuges that's actually closed to the public. And the reason for that is because it's such a sensitive place. Uh, it's a relatively small area, yet it supports an incredibly large and diverse amount of wildlife. So there's over 300,000 breeding seabirds and tens of thousands of seals and sea lions which breed on the island, uh, as well as we have an endemic cricket and we have an endemic salamander. So bringing people out to the island and, and allowing them to move around on the air on the island can cause quite a bit of disturbance to that wildlife. And that's why they're closed and that's why they're protected so closely because it's a very fragile ecosystem. Cool. So talking of spending that much time on the Farallons, I mean, originally the people who lived here and, and there's two what look super ancient houses here. Um, the first folks to live here were, I guess, the lighthouse keepers. When, when were they here? Uh, so the lighthouse keepers were maybe not the first regular inhabitants, but they were the first ones to become permanent inhabitants on the island. And they were here in the late 1800s through uh, the 1930s or so. Um, prior to the lighthouse keepers, actually, the island was used by um, fur sealers, so people who were coming to the island to collect seals and sea lions to sell their pelts overseas. So talking of which, I mean, you can just hear the sound of seals and how have those seal populations fared since those days of being hunted? How would you describe the recovery of the fur seal and, and the other seal population? Uh, since the islands have become a refuge, the seal populations have done incredibly well. So back in the, the late 1800s when people were coming out and hunting the seals and sea lions out there, uh, the populations were decimated. Uh, northern elephant seals were almost driven to extinction. Uh, northern fur seals were completely wiped out in California, uh, including at the Farallon Islands. And the sea lion populations were also decimated. Uh, since the, the late 60s, early 70s, when it became a refuge, those populations have been able to slowly recover. And the most exciting and, and striking example of that are the northern fur seals. So fur seals, there's only two colonies in California. There's one down in the Channel Islands and there's the Farallon Islands. And they were absent after the hunting period. The fur seals were absent for more than 100 years. Uh, they started showing up again at the island sporadically in the 80s. And then in 1996, the first pup was born. Uh, since 1996, the population was uh, recovering at an almost exponential rate and uh, it's grown incredibly over that period of time and now we have more than 2,000 pups being born on the islands every year. That's incredible. I mean it's such a hopeful sign and, and also just within the period of, of one person's life you can see the difference which is just amazing. You were just showing me Pete that as one population like the fur seals grow they move into other areas where other seals were T tell me about like the seal real estate on the Farallons. uh yeah that's that's definitely true so as, as you can see it's you know relatively small island and so space is always at a premium 
Um, the sea lions were probably the first to recover from disturbance and they pretty much had the island to themselves for 50 years or more before the first seals started returning. Uh, but when the first seals started coming back and uh, recolonizing their, their old territory, they had to make room and fur seals are, are much more aggressive. They're, they're not the biggest seals, but they are very aggressive and they chase the, the California sea lions away from their breeding areas. So then the fur seal population has been growing. They've been taking over more and more space and that's forcing the sea lions to go to other parts of the island. Um, and then the sea lions moving to other parts of the island, they're crawling up on the marine terrace um, this kind of flat green area you see out on the front part of the island here. And that's actually causing the seabirds that are breeding in that area to have to move to someplace else. So everything gets rearranged when the, the species recover. But they all live together at one point in time and they'll, they'll adjust and be able to live together again. The reason that there's so much life here is because the continental shelf kind of comes quickly to the Farallons. Someone analogized the Farallons to like the Galapagos of Northern California. I mean, there's just so much, so much life on this island. Why, why is it? I think the reason that people call us the Galapagos of California is because of the diversity and abundance of wildlife uh, around the Farallons. And the reason that we have that is because of incredibly productive ocean conditions in the region around uh, Central California. Um, so as you mentioned, the continental shelf is pretty close to shore here. It's, it's only about five miles farther out than where we are here at the islands. And what happens along the shelf is there's um, a phenomenon called upwelling. So as the, the typical spring winds are blowing uh, in this area, they're blowing from the northwest, this causes the surface waters to move offshore and then those waters are replaced by cold water from the deep just off the continental shelf there. And the cold, deep water holds a lot of nutrients. You know, you can imagine that everything that's ever been in the ocean and eventually dies and decays, all of that falls to the bottom of the ocean and provides nutrients for everything that comes after. So those nutrients get recycled up to the surface and that makes for uh, phytoplankton blooms which then feed small critters called krill and that feeds the seabirds and the small fish and then that in turn feeds the larger seabirds and the marine mammals. Amazing and it just it just feels like we're at the end of the world but but in reality this rocky outpost in the middle of what feels like the middle of the Pacific actually used to be part of the southern Sierra Nevada. How is that possible? Well, um, the Farallon Islands themselves are on the Pacific Plate, and the rest of mainland California is on the Continental Plate. And so gradually, over time, the Pacific Plate has shifted northward uh, along the San Andreas Fault. And the islands, which originally formed down off of Southern California, uh, and were connected to the mainland at, at one time, have been moved by plate tectonics further north, and they continue to move north. Uh, I believe the rate is about one to two centimeters a year we're, we're continuing to move north. Incredible. <laughs> and so this landmass is actually, if, if you kind of look to the north, connected to 
what is still Point Reyes. Yes, the, the peninsula of Point Reyes is on the same landmass as the Farallons. And then if you've ever been out to Point Reyes, there's uh, something called the Earthquake Trail, which is a, a pretty cool feature. And it hikes right along the San Andreas Fault. And you can see where some of the past earthquakes have altered that habitat. So Point Reyes will gradually move north as well as the Farallons move north. So back to the seals. So the seals are everywhere in the water. They make a huge amount of noise that is i love the sounds that they make um they also attract um and kind of add to the mythological status of the farallon they attract a lot of great white sharks um so in the in the 20 years that that you've been out here do you have you ever seen the great whites i mean what are they kind of a part of living out here oh yes i've seen many white sharks out there um the white sharks tend to be strongly seasonal at the Farallon Islands. We have seen them uh, every month of the year, but the vast majority of them are in there during the fall season, so between September and November. And the reason that the sharks are around the Farallons in such high numbers and high concentration is because there's this abundant food source for the sharks, which of course are the seals and sea lions that breed on the island. Um, of particular importance are the northern elephant seals. So elephant seals pup in the winter, and those pups, you know, first go off to sea in March or so, and then come fall after they've gone out and they've fattened up, uh, they come back to the island for the first time, and the sharks are kind of waiting for them. And it's a, a perfect, uh, you know, little bigger than bite size, food source for those sharks and uh, it's very high in energy for the sharks so they can feed on one elephant seal here at the Farallons and, and have enough energy to last for months. Up on the wall in the place that, that all the researchers and, and you live there's a dinghy with a huge mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it looks like the shark ate the dinghy like what, what happened there? Uh, you're not far off. Uh, so. <laughs> This was one day uh, we were doing a boat landing, much like the one that we just completed. <laughs> now, now you tell me, great. Yeah, we, we don't yeah. give that out at the beginning because we don't want to scare anybody. But Okay. So we were doing a landing on the other side of the island and we were using an inflatable boat called a Zodiac. And uh, on that particular day, the skipper of the boat that brought the crew out offered to take our scientists on a tour around the island so they could do some surveys from the bigger boat. And what they did is they left the Zodiac tied up to the mooring buoy while they took the boat around the island and did their survey. And when they came back, it was flat. And they didn't really know what happened uh, until they pulled the boat out of the water and they saw this big shark bite taken out of the side of it. So apparently while they were luckily not on board, uh, a shark mistook the inflatable boat for a large seal and decided to take a run at it. This happened. That's insane. This happens fairly regularly. Sharks um, are visual predators. Uh, they tend to swim near the bottom and look up, and they look for that silhouette of something that looks like a seal. And uh, when they see it and they feel they have an opportunity, they just explode up through the water and take a big bite. I was fortunate enough to speak with Kim Chambers, um, who swam from the Farallons all the way back to San Francisco. Did you meet Kim when she was out there or training at all? I, I can't believe anyone would swim in the water with these sharks. Uh, I, I have met Kim, but not until after she had completed her swim. So we had been in contact with her beforehand, 
um, you know, telling her about the, her and her crew about the conditions out at the islands. Um, but I didn't get to meet her until after the swim happened. Uh, I do agree with you that it is pretty crazy to go out there and swim with sharks. It's definitely not something that I would ever do. Good. That makes me feel a little more comfortable. So as we walk along these narrow pathways, the island has a very northern Scottish feeling, but there are these little bird boxes that have an interesting design. T tell us about them. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, there are 13 species of seabirds that breed on the Farallon Islands. Uh, one of them is called the Cassin's Auklet. And Cassin's Auklets are one of the species that nest in either burrows that they dig into the soil or in rocky crevices. And so to make them easier to study and also to provide additional habitat for them, we've built a bunch of nest boxes and there's, there's almost 500 of them scattered around the island. Um, traditionally, they were just made out of plywood and they would have like a little plastic tunnel. But um, we noticed this starting about a, a decade or so ago, uh, we noticed that the nest boxes were starting to get really warm. So as the climate is warming, the Farallon Islands temperatures, uh, air temperatures are going up and those nest boxes are getting heated in the sun and it's causing problems for the auklet. So what we've started doing is working with another nonprofit, Oikonos, and with a ceramics artist who helped us design what we're calling climate smart nest modules. And these are clay nest boxes, which are much more resistant to changes in temperature and provide more stable habitat for nesting auklets as the, the climate is warming. It's amazing that just the kind of adaptations that, that you're making and that you're helping the birds make through climate change. What other climate impacts are you noticing, Pete, on the island? Well, it's, it's one of the things that having this incredibly long time series of data allows us to do is to see how things are being altered. And so we can see from our climate data that we collect on the island, environmental data that we collect, that the average air temperature has been steadily increasing over the last 30 years or more. Also, the frequency of extreme heat events. And, you know, an extreme heat event for the Farallons is different than other places, but if it gets above 80 degrees Fahrenheit on the Farallons, that's extremely hot. The seabirds do not do well when it gets that warm. Uh, they tend to get overly stressed. Um, those nest boxes get really warm. Birds that are sitting on the surface uh, suffer from heat stress. So we've seen a, a increase in the number of events where we have days above 80 degrees. Besides the, the environmental data, we see changes in the seabird diet. So what the birds are preying on is an indicator of what ocean conditions are like. And as the ocean warms, we see changes in the assembly of forage fish that the birds are preying on. We see changes in the abundance of krill, which is that really important plankton at the, the base of the food chain that pretty much everything else survives on. And we see changes in the habitat on the island. So changes in the rainfall patterns, changes in the vegetation, which impacts their nesting success. And do you see the types of birds that you hadn't seen before because it's getting warmer, like 
Are there, are there any kind of other changes that manifest themselves? One example of that is as the ocean has been, you know, warming more or less continuously, uh, we've seen more southerly species showing up at the Farallons a lot more often. Uh, one good example is the brown booby. So brown boobies nest typically in Hawaii and in Mexico and further south. But over the last decade, they've not only been seen at the Farallons regularly, but they're, they're hanging out in larger numbers throughout the summer season. Uh, we haven't seen any evidence of them breeding yet, but with the number of boobies that are hanging around and how long they're staying around during the breeding season, it's possible that they'll start breeding on the islands sometime in the next decade or so. One of the, the other success stories, um, back to kind of the northern fur seal, is the myrrh. And you described them to me a minute ago as the northern hemisphere penguins. They, they kind of look a little bit like penguins, but are the myrrhs the, the species that has the most presence on the Farallon Islands? Yes, so myrrhs are by far the most abundant species on the Farallons at this time. There's over 250,000 of them that breed just on the, the South Islands where we are, and then probably another 100,000 that breed on the, the little group of islands further north of here. And they're, they're a really interesting and really successful recovery story. So back during the gold rush period, you know, the 1850s, the population of the San Francisco Bay Area was exploding, the human population. And there weren't enough basic supplies for, to support that many people. And one of the things that was in short supply were eggs. And so some rather courageous and entrepreneurial folks decide to start going out to the Farallon Islands and collecting the eggs from the myrrh colony which they would then sell in the market in San Francisco. And while this was kind of a interesting marketing scheme, it was devastating for the seabird populations. And so the populations were decimated. At one time before the egging began, the myrrh population was estimated to be somewhere between 500,000 and a million birds uh, breeding on the Farallons. Uh, wow. That that number was knocked down to only a few thousand birds uh, by the time egging was finally stopped. And then it took almost 100 years for the, the population to really start to recover. And it was in, well, the 2000s over the last 20 years that the population has grown very quickly from around 60,000 when, when I started working out there to more than 250,000 breeding out there now. The islands are really incredible during the, the seabird breeding season. Uh, yeah, as you said, you know, that's, we're out here now in the fall. Uh, the seabirds are all done breeding and most of them have gone off to sea for the winter. They'll, they'll overwinter on the ocean wherever the food is and follow that around until it's time for the next breeding season. But during the spring and summer, so from about April until August or early September, the islands are just alive with seabirds. There's over 350,000 breeding seabirds of 13 species out there. It's just incredible to be here during that time of year. You feel very small and insignificant. Uh, the island belongs to the wildlife and they are nesting 
literally everywhere. Uh, there'll be a gull nest every five or six feet uh, along the trail and, and on the marine terrace. There'll be Cassin's Auklets digging burrows um, every few feet underground and, and under even under the houses, Auklets uh, will be nesting. Cormorants and, and murs are covering the slopes. Uh, it's it's an amazing sight to behold when the whole colony is there. In terms of being out here, what is it like just in the winter when you just got these massive storms? Because even today, on a now the sun's finally coming out, it's relatively windy. It feels like a pretty windy place. Yes, the Farallons are a very windy place. We tend to get storms moving in from the southwest, and those storms tend to be very large. They bring a lot of moisture. That's that's what brings us our rain. And some of the storms during the winter can be very intense. Wind blowing in excess of 50 miles an hour, swells of 25 to 30 feet crashing onto the island. Uh, it's it's pretty remarkable to watch. Uh, we're not able to do a lot of work in those conditions, but we hunker down in the houses and, and watch the storm blow through. And uh, it is, again, just to be able to be in that kind of environment and witness the, the majesty and the power of these natural processes is an incredible experience and one that I feel very lucky to have been able to experience for, for my time out here. Today, there's five maybe six other researchers out here. Like, how many how many people are normally on island with you? That's about a normal size crew. Uh, the most that we ever have out there are eight people. A crew of five to, to eight people is enough for us to get our work done and make sure that, you know, everybody is safe, but also, you know, keeps us from causing disturbance to the wildlife on the island. We were just walking past some folks who are putting solar panels up or repairing them. Like, feels really self-sufficient. Like, we just passed the place where you collect rainwater. I mean, it, this, this seems like also a model of sustainability, the setup that you have on the island. We do pride ourselves on that. We collect all of our own rainwater. We generate all of our own power on the island, either with the photovoltaic array or with a generator. It's important when you're that far out to be self-sufficient because it's not always easy to get assistance from the mainland. Uh, and it's also supportive of our mission. Our mission is to conserve these ecosystems and this wildlife. And so by being self-sufficient, by generating our own power in a sustainable way, by you know collecting our, our water locally and treating it on the island for our use, we feel like we're having the, the least amount of impact and, and doing the best we can for that environment while still having our facilities. And Pete, on a, on a personal level, like, how does it affect you? I, I can imagine like it's really hard to transition back to the mainland. I mean, it, it feels, even just after spending a day here, just feels so peaceful. Like, Tell me about that transition of having spent so many nights in this place, how do you view the mainland? It can be very challenging, especially the first time you spend a, a big chunk of time on the island. So for me now, after 20 years, I'm, I'm used to making that transition back and forth, but I, I still remember from my first couple of years going out there when I would be out there for several months at a time and then you go back to the mainland and everything on the mainland is so noisy and so fast. 
and there are so many people around, it becomes overwhelming. Uh, the simple act of driving your vehicle back from the boat dock to your home is terrifying because uh, you haven't moved any faster than walking speed for months and you haven't seen any more than five people and then all of a sudden you know you're back in a huge metropolitan area like San Francisco and you're trying to adjust to being part of society again. Um, it's, it's pretty daunting at first. You know, and people often laugh when I talk about how noisy it is when I get back to the mainland because most people come out to the Farallons and they hear all the seals and the sea lions barking and they, they hear the, the gulls screaming and the other seabirds making noise and, they, and the wind howling and the waves crashing. And they think it, it seems very noisy out on the Farallons. But um, to me, you, that's the sound of nature and you get used to it very quickly. But when you go back to the mainland and it's, it's car horns and alarms and, you know, planes flying overhead and things like that, it's, it's a little harder to, to adjust back to that. Having spent 20 years really absorbing the changes and, and being so close to wildlife, like how do you view the natural world differently now than when you first came onto the Farallons? It's definitely altered my point of view, uh, having been immersed in nature in that way. Um, what I think I really take away from it is that if we're able to reduce our impact, if we're able to leave wildlife alone, leave nature alone, it will recover. You know, the fur seals and the MERS are a great example of that. Once we stopped disturbing them, they were able to recover. It took a long time, but they were able to naturally recover. And I think the same can be said for a lot of the wildlife. If we're able to, you know, give them their space and make sure that the resources that the wildlife need are available, then they can thrive and we can thrive and, uh, you know, everything can live in a little better balance. A huge thank you to Pete Wozniak and the entire Point Blue Conservation team, their partners at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the skipper of the Alder Banks. It was an adventure of a lifetime, and I'm so glad that I got to share it with you today. Understanding the power of nature to heal herself, as was so clearly demonstrated with both the northern fur seals and the muirs on the Farallons, is a powerful message during this time of pandemic for our species. It also illustrates the terrifying power we have over the rest of the natural world. With that power comes the responsibility to exercise both compassion and restraint. Without protected places like the Farallons, we likely would have lost the northern fur seal forever. I was also struck by the continuous scientific record that Point Blue has kept going since 1968. Only through the tenacious dedication of empirical research can we comprehend and adapt to the changes around us? Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, who this week had to piece together the story from recordings because the federal government wouldn't allow us to record on the islands themselves, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, I hope you get to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Earth Day in style. <laughs>